everybody, St. Paul Peterson here. Welcome to Music on the Run. Our next guest is one of the most recorded bassists in history. Leland Sklar is next on Music on the Run. Before we get started here, do me a favor. Wherever you got this podcast, make sure you subscribe, give us a rating, and if you have time and like what you're hearing, make sure you write a review. It really helps us get the word out so we can have a lot more people coming to the party. Hey everybody, I'm St. Paul Peterson. Prince gave me that nickname, and I've been lucky enough to tour with people like the Steve Miller Band, Kenny Loggins, Peter Frampton, Donny Osmond, to name a few. And when I'm not playing music, I love to run. And this is a podcast about how we stay healthy on the road, physically, mentally, and with our families. Welcome to Music on the Run. I got to go now. Hey everybody, St. Paul Peterson here and welcome to episode 29 of Music on the Run and I'm so lucky to be able to have my next guest on the show. Before I introduce him, I just want to say, hey, it's 2021. We finally get to say goodbye to 2020. Thank you, Lord. You know what I'm saying? And you know what? There is a light at the end of the tunnel. I, uh, I'm hoping that we find a way to safely come back and play some music. And of course, uh, pertaining to this podcast, wouldn't it be great if I could actually do some of these in person? But I will say that this has opened up a whole new roster, if you will, of musicians, artists, comedians, and all that uh, to be able to interview because these guys aren't on the road. And uh, I've been blessed enough for them to say yes to this this podcast, and we've been having so much fun gathering these great tips and tricks of the trade to pass down to you all. Anyway, my next guest is one of the most iconic and talented bass players in the world. He's played on some of your favorite records, and there's way too many to mention, so let me just highlight this. James Taylor, Jackson Brown, Phil Collins, and the list continues. He's also been a touring musician for 42 years, and I think he's been growing his beard that long as well. He's <laughs> uh, known for his one-finger salute. Uh, please welcome <laughs> Leland Sklar. Did you? That's the world's longest. Hit. Thank you. Might as well start off like that, it right? Means, it just means you're number one to me. <laughs> Who's number one? You're number you're one. Number one. Oh man, we were just you know we we were just chatting a little bit before this uh, podcast began, and because you and I don't really actually know each other, I know we have a lot of uh, humans in common. I think you actually played music with my brother, Ricky. I'm not sure if you remember, but he's a great B3 player. Absolutely. Oh, cool. Yeah. Great. But uh, you and I have not had the pleasure to uh, to hang out, and I've tried to come up and find you at NAMM show, but that's just impossible. That's the wrong place to do things. Yeah, and now there is no NAMM show this next year, so... I know. I I always look Weird. forward to going there because I've run into every drummer that I've ever played with and, and every musician, and it's, it's all about yeah. the hang. Yeah, it's it's sad, but I, I've done a couple of virtual things with Dom Famularo and and Mr. Bonsai. That they're doing a bunch of things virtually for you know for Nam. But yeah, like like you, it's the hang. Yeah, you know, I don't need gear. I just I just go there to kind of fulfill the uh, the fact that everybody else is just an email or a you know a Zoom or whatever. It, but the tangible thing of Nam is what's happening. 
Sure is. I mean, I love to look at the gear. I don't usually end up going home with anything. I get a little yeah. bit of knowledge. I get to see, you know, a bunch of friends, try to find a place to have dinner, which is always impossible. And it's <laughs> about the hunt to try to find a place for dinner, I think, is is part of the fun as well. Oh, the lobby of the Hilton. <laughs> oh, God. Nice and quiet and relaxed. <laughs> oh, forget it. Where where am I finding you? Where, where you hold up? I'm, I live in Pasadena. Oh, okay. So you're in Cali. I'm out by the Rose Bowl. And it's so surreal right now because every year is the Rose Parade. And by now, oh, all the bleachers right. would have been up. And there's nothing. There's no Rose Parade, no no Rose Bowl game. Um, it's, it's like a ghost town. It's really bizarre. No restaurants. I mean, out here, everything is in total lockdown. You guys really have been uh, locked We're down dead. hard. I mean, nothing is going on. Yeah, they said, I think they, they just, I was just watching the news, and I think they said, um, I think somebody dies every 10 minutes now from oh. COVID here. Um, I mean, the numbers are staggering. They were showing um, a hospital, and the, the gift shop has gurneys in it with people. Um, the hallways, I mean, there's not one emergency bed available in Los Angeles. Frightening. So it's, Frightening. it's scary. It's scary. being So, I, you know, like... I'm just hunkered down. I'm just pretty much living my life at home and do, do the occasional go out and, and deal with the things I have to deal with, but doing them under incredibly cautious circumstances. I'm sure. But it's not like you've been uh, sitting still. Before we get into what you've been doing, uh, which has been a lot, and a very man, it's unbelievable what you've accomplished in the nine months we've been sitting here. Where were you supposed to go in 2020? What did you have planned? I know you had a a, a full touring schedule. Um, I had a, I had a, a bunch of one-off gigs that were uh, like one was in Switzerland that was supposed to be in May, and it is now rescheduled for March of 22. Oh, that's because it was a huge gig. Um, had stuff in Japan and Europe. Uh, our band, The Immediate Family, we had a tour lined up. Our album was supposed to be out now. And, right. You know, it was, a, it was a very full year. It was pretty much a solid year of work that, that evaporated like a fart in a hurricane. <laughs> fart in a world war. You know, the one thing that you, if, if nothing else you can take to heart is the fact that you weren't singled out. Everybody's suffering in this one. So this is, you know, I feel really bad about the work I lost, but every player I know is experiencing the same thing. So yeah. From the guy who, who just plays at the coffee house all the way up to yeah. someone like Mick Jagger, we're all sitting at home. Yeah. Doing yeah. the and, best we can. And, and the, the and to me, uh, some of the greatest tragedy of this period is when I look at like the people that are graduating from MI and, and oh. Berkeley and, Yes. You know, they're, they're coming out the door hungry and ready to hit. And, man, there's nothing. But the, it, within the business, the ones I really feel really the most for are all, all the crew, all the roadies. Oh, yeah. and stuff, because they, they generally really have no plan B. If they're not on the road working, they're pretty much unemployed, period. And uh, it's, a, it's just such a profoundly difficult time. And, you know, and it's, it's just heartbreaking beyond... I mean, I've, I know a number of people now that have died, and I know a number of people that are in, that are hospitalized, and and that's uh, it's just shocking. 
you know, it's I'm old enough to where I remember when we got the polio vaccines and all Jeez. that. And, uh, you know, I'm just hopeful that that the vaccines will have a positive effect on things and that other companies will, you know, be able to develop theirs so that we can get a lot more than just these two companies taking care of business. Um, but I read an um, article yesterday uh, on Sunday about how the first world countries, you know, like the states and Europe and stuff, are getting all the vaccine and all the poorer countries are going to be at the end of the list. So their suffering is going to go on for a long time. And a lot of those yeah. countries are places I love to go tour. Um, of course. And so it's a uh, it's all bizarre. I mean, it's one of those things like a bad Twilight Zone episode. <laughs> and you just you right. keep hoping that we'll, we'll wake up. But the reality of it is, is there is a, there's a light at the end of the tunnel now. And then it's not just yeah. a train coming at you. Um, hopefully, hopefully there will be an end in sight. But we have to be patient and smart and have to suffer a little longer before we can start to come out of this. And uh but other than that, Mrs. Lincoln, how was the play? <laughs> You're not right. You're not right. Well, okay. So I, I've known what you've been doing because I've been, I've been doing my research on you, of course. Um, but you have to tell me how this YouTube channel oh, developed. Man. I mean, good Lord. That's a lot of content. Do you mind telling yeah. the, uh, the listeners a little bit about that? Yeah, um, what happened was we had um, finished Phil Collins's Not Dead Yet tour, which was the last big tour we did. And we were out off and on for about two and a half years. Right. And when we finished it, I got uh, a few notes from bass players generally who said, man, we saw you in South America or Europe. And then a lot of those gigs were big stadium gigs, you know, 80,000 people. Yeah. And um, they said, it, the, sh the show sounded unbelievable. Our front of house mixer, Michelle Collin, is just an amazing front of house. And they said it sounded great, but it was still hard sometimes to hear real definition in all the bass parts, you know, sure. because of the size of the venue. Mm -hmm. So I thought to myself, uh, well, first off, I thought to myself, when the pandemic hit, the, the predecessor to this um, whole, all this stuff starting was, we have a band, uh, I'm going to, Get off track a second. Here. That's okay. Go for it. Um, we have a band called the Immediate Family. Right. And and that's Danny Korchmar and Waddy Wachtel, Russ Kunkel, myself, and Steve Postel. Well, at the end of February, we did a, a tour called uh, a cruise called the Rock Legends Cruise that was from Fort Lauderdale to the Grand Caymans and back. Right. And it was Roger Daltrey and Nancy Wilson, Mark Farner, all kinds of Ooh. artists were on this. It was an amazing Jeez. hang on this on right. this trip. And when we got back from that is when the shit hit the fan right? and everything was shutting down. Um, so I was, I found myself just kind of sitting going, I've never had time off. I mean, I've been like, I've been on the road literally every year for 50 years. I've never missed a year on the road um, and studio work and all, I had all kinds of studio mm -hmm. projects lined up and suddenly everything was gone. So, so when these people contacted me about, you know, some of the base things, I thought to myself, I, I contacted Michelle, the front of house guy, had him send me our, our show. He had one sitting there from Adelaide. Yeah. Um, so um, I loaded it into my laptop, plugged in a little Sony, a, a little Bose speaker into the headphone jack. Sure. And I have a bass amp on the floor next to me. 
And so what I did was I would sit here with my iPhone and I would play the track and then I kind of balanced it to where you could hear the track, but the bass part was louder right. than the track. So you could hear every note of it. So I could show the nuances and I thought, I'm just going to start with the beginning of the show. I'll start with the first song and every day I'll post another song. About three days into it, I had people starting to write going, man, we love your YouTube channel. And I go, what are you talking about? <laughs> Did I, you know you had one? No, your, 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 your YouTube. I, I go, I, I don't have a YouTube channel. I mean, I peruse YouTube sure. incessantly looking you know, at, at content and stuff. I love mm -hmm. it. Um, but I didn't realize that by posting a few things, you became a channel. Um, so I, I kept on with, with Phil's and I started telling stories about the, the tour, about recording and, and all this. And I ran the show in the order of the show, did a song a day. And the only song from that show I haven't done yet is Take Me Home, which I figure will be the last video I ever do. And that'll there you be go. The right. closeout. But I got to the end of the thing and I thought, well, Jesus, you know, now I've run out of that show. What am I going to do? So I, I just decided to start going archivally. And I pulled up like Dr. My Eyes and yep. Jackson Brown stuff, pulled out Billy Cobham Spectrum. There you go. Stuff in that. And and now at this point, since the pandemic began, I've posted at least one video a day, every single day. I haven't missed one day yet. Um, so there's probably, you know, going on 400 videos uh, this year. And suddenly now I mean, I've got 144,000. That's unbelievable. People. 144. What you've done is you've created a hang. Another yeah. way to hang. Well, the, the beauty of it for me is also within the framework of that, uh, of that channel, I formed a clubhouse mm -hmm. that for people, it's $10 a month and I do two live streams and my live streams go on an average of two to two and a half hours. Jeez. And, um, and it, the thing I'm so loving is like, if I'm supposed to start the live stream at three o'clock, I kind of go in there and the chat window's already open at like 2.30. Man, all these people have become friends. They're calling, you know, they're talking to each other from Ireland to wow. Dubai to Australia and Europe. And, and they're just, how are you doing? How's everything there? How's the weather? You know, and, and how's the family? So mm. it's become this community where I became more of a uh, an enabler. <laughs> than, the ringleader, the enabler. Sure. Yeah, yeah. And, and um and it's so much fun to uh, just to talk to everybody on that. And then I have a, like an elite level where I'll talk to somebody for like 15, 20 minutes on Skype or, you know, FaceTime one-on-one. -on -one. And uh, so that evolved out of this. And, um, and really, I, 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 I sort of feel like, like kind of a weird old Mr. Rogers. What you going to do today, me, kids? Yeah. Yeah. Um, I, I don't put on my tennies, but um, <laughs> or my sweater. But but people are, they send me pictures of the family eating dinner, watching the videos. And, and no kidding. It's amazing. It's, it's a phenomenon that kind of blew my mind. But there's, so there's been a bunch of things like this, but I, you know, I, I'm uh and I've told the people, because some people were concerned, they said, look, if things open up again and you guys hit the road again, will that be the end of this channel? And I right. said, no. I said, absolutely. That'll enhance this channel. I said, I'll take you on the road with me. There I'll, you you go. Know, I'll set the camera up and do you know live stream sound checks and stuff and introduce you to the people I'm on the road with and you can talk. And I said, no, I, have, I said, this has become one of the most satisfying experiences of my life. And 
<clears throat> a report just came out, and they had, I think it was the top 80 or 100 podcasts and things like this in the world. And we had Oprah Winfrey and, you know, yep. and Howard Stern and everybody. And I came in number 12. How's that? How's yeah, I mean, that feel? It's kind of just mind-boggling to me. But uh, I'm so low-tech. I do everything. <laughs> I mean, everything is on my phone. Perfect. You know, I just, I just I've, I've, I've got a, a, a selfie stick here that I, I'm sitting at a desk, and I pull the drawer out, and I have <laughs> – this, this is the quality of how my studio is set up. I have a, a selfie stick and a C-clamp. Yeah. <laughs> I, I, I bolt the selfie stick to the drawer and put the camera oh, that's in. so good. And my chair's been squeaking the whole time, and everybody goes, don't fix it. And then I joked at one point, said, I'm going to get a green screen, put it behind me. So, And they said, don't touch a thing. <laughs> well, it's, so, the real, it's the real you, man. People well, love is. to see the real deal happening without the high production value. Even. Yeah, there is zero production on this. Um, which is for me is is perfect because I'm just flying by the seat of my pants every day. The the hardest part for me is is number one finding a song that I worked on and spending like ten minutes trying to relearn it because I've I never written, written down a chart or anything for any of this. So um, some of it's a challenge, and I haven't done some of the things that are really hard, like no other from Gene Clark. Um, okay. I, I have like six bases on that track, I and mean, it's almost all bases and. There's no way I could replicate that. So people have been very accepting of, they say, just tell some stories and then let's listen to a song. So then I'll right. go ahead and play the track and, and then talk about what went on there and doing forensics, trying to find out who was on the dates and stuff, because some of these are decades removed. But, you know, I'm just like everybody else. I'm looking for a way to feel valid during mm -hmm. such an invalid period of history where everything's been taken away for the most part. You know, how do you... How do you go on? And a lot of people I know are in profound states of depression over this. I mean, this yep. has gone on to where um, this is, it's very difficult. But, uh, you know, I, I've always been that kind of person that, that I can get depressed real easily like anybody else. I mean, it's not, not mm -hmm. that difficult. But I kind of look at things like, you know, we were kind of dealt a rancid lemon, but I really like lemonade. So, you know, you, right. you, work, your ass, you work your ass off. And this is, I'm working so much harder than I ever would have been working if I'd have been. Right. I mean, you go on the road, you work four hours a day, basically. Exactly. Down checking a show. Done. So is, do you think that uh, that's a choice, Leland? I mean, you wake up and you go, you know, either you're going to make lemonade out of the lemons you dealt or, or, or you're not, right? You're gonna I mean, and then you obviously have made the choice to. Do nothing all day. Yeah. I'm, I'm very ADHD kind of person. I'm, I'm I'm not good. Uh, for me, it's like I, I got a hammock finally, and I got in the backyard and I lay in the hammock. And within three minutes, I'm looking around the yard, going, "Oh shit, I got to go trim that bush." And I'm, I'm I'm off and running. I'm downtime and and myself don't get along very well. Like my mm -hmm. wife knows everything that's on Netflix, and I don't know anything that's on Netflix practically because. She, she can hunker down with the dogs and just relax and watch TV. And for me, uh, I'm not good at that. So, uh, but you, you and me, what is same? My wife of 30, 30 years, like you've been married over 40. Is that right? Well, we just had our 50th a week ago. 50th? Yeah. Congratulations. I'm fortunate that it was at a time when you were allowed to marry two year olds. 
<laughs> oh, you naughty man. <laughs> yeah, yeah. No, I mean, you know, why That's not? unbelievable, man. That's so yeah. great. Congratulations. Well, 30, man, that's, that's a, ch- in this, in this industry, mm-hmm. um, that certainly is, is, is a challenge that that's for sure. But I'm fortunate that, that my wife is a very independent person and she has a life of, she doesn't have a job, but she had a, a very active social life with her friends and stuff and d- doesn't require me to be fulfilled, you know, which is good because uh, I know that too many. Good. Yeah, I know too many guys that, you know, it's like if they're not, they're catering, mm-hmm. they're lost. Right. And, uh, and, I, and she's t- like, she'll get together with girlfriends and they'll fly to Europe and go on vacation. And I stay home, take care of the house and the dogs and just do local work. So it, it worked out fine. And uh, we're still, still cranking along. That's so inspiring. And good for you. You, you figure out a way to support each other when you need to. And that's what another thing that this podcast is about, and we'll get into it a little bit later, but um, it's about how you survive 40 plus years on the road and maintain a relationship with either your wife, uh, your kids or your family, your extended family, anybody, anything. And that's, that's really an, I think it's an art form and I think it's something that, the next generation or any traveling businessman or woman needs to hear from successful people like yourself. Yeah. How the hell did you pull that off? Well, well, from my, from my standpoint, I've been fortunate being that we've been together this long. I knew her before I knew James Taylor. Got it. So she's seen everything. everything. Yeah. I mean, she's been here since the very beginning. Um, And I I think one of the things um, there's like a mutual respect that yeah. we have. I mean, we're, it, we're, we depend on each other, but we're not codependent. Mm-hmm. You know, so like I said, we both have our, our lives. Um, whenever we would be doing like some really cool gigs, if I was in New York for a week or London for a week or Paris or something like that on a tour, then she could fly out and she's the kind of person that would come see one show yeah. And then the other nights she would go to the theater or something. Exactly rather than right. Go, See, rather been than, there, done that. I've seen yeah. the show two, a thousand times. I'm going to go. I love you, honey, but I'll meet you back after the show. It does not hurt my feelings one bit, right. you know, for her to do that. Um, and it also takes the pressure off of me. I've got a show to focus on. I really mm-hmm. don't like having family at, at gigs for the most part because no matter how loose it is there still is your attention is slightly distracted of course did they get in okay or did they need something to drink blah 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 is security hassling them mm-hmm. you know all these things that come in so when i'm on a when i'm at a gig i want to be there a hundred percent focused on the gig because that's why i am there right um but also for for me one of the things that probably got me through everything I've done. And I don't pat myself on the back for this because I don't see things as virtues or any, but I, yeah. I've never taken drugs. I've never drank, never smoked, never did anything like that. Wow. So for me, my days on the road were always an adventure where other guys were sleeping in. I would go find museums, botanical gardens, junk shops, um, right. you name it. Uh, I would just be out. I, I kind of looked at, Travel is one of the greatest bonuses that Amen. this gig has given us. Oh, and yeah. so I, you know, I remember being in, in Tokyo 
and we were in the hotel. I forget who I was with. It might have been um, it might have been James Taylor back then. Um, but I'm walking through the lobby of the hotel, and I bumped into Larry Carlton, and he right. was over there with the Crusaders. Yeah. And I said, so, Larry, what you guys up to? And he goes, well, now everybody kind of stays in their room. And I looked at him, I said, are you kidding me? You're in Tokyo, and you're staying in your hotel rooms? Come on. I dragged his ass out, and we bopped up. Because I've been, I've been going to Japan since 1970 on a real regular basis Golly. and worked with a lot of Japanese artists and toured over there. So we went out and just spent the day jamming around, took him to Rapongi, took him Akihabara and, and showed him all the electronic stores, oh, yeah. all that stuff. Oh, yeah. And, um, and, you know, and the thought that like Wilton Felder and those guys are all sitting in a hotel room, I think, this is ridiculous. But so I, I really love doing that. But I also, when I'm on the road, I'm, I'm pretty much, I, remember, I know in Phil Collins' tours, they would sometimes refer to me as the Howard Hughes of the tour. <laughs> you know, if they would say, well, let's get together at 10, I'd go, cool. And then I would leave at nine, you know, just because I like being on my own. I don't like waiting. Do you? On really? Yeah, I really, when I'm out, out there, the, the, the most fun I've had on the road, I think, um, is touring with Judith Owen, okay. who's married to Harry Shearer. Yep. And, um, and, she has that same wanderlust. So every day we just say, look, we'll meet in the lobby at nine and let's hit it. And she puts together an itinerary of all the cool things in that town to go see. Wow. And I become her Sherpa because she's a voracious shopper. So I end up coming back to the hotel laden in bags and boxes. <laughs> and I mean, it's the, funniest, it's the funniest relationship, but she's so inventive and creative that we, we, she's one of the few people I'll spend time on the road with like that and, Got it. and share the time. But it's a it's such a great opportunity to see the world, and the idea of not taking advantage of it to me is just shocking. Because you, once it's over, it's over. You can't go back. You know. So yeah, people are paying you to go see the world. I mean, yeah. I, I, you got to take advantage of that. Well, I'm like, with you. Yeah, like so many players. You know, I, 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 you know, I've always said this, and I know other guys that say. I do all the shows for free, and I get paid to kill 21 hours a day. Oh, big you know, time. I mean, Jesus, the show's a gift. Are yeah, you kidding? sure is. You get out and do that, but, you know, there's, there's the arduous side mm. of going through, and especially as years have gone on. I mean, I remember back when we started touring, and you go to the airport, there was no security. You just right. walked into the airport and went to the gate and got on the plane. And, right. You know, easy peasy. Everything was fine. Right. Uh, now... You know, just the, the whole process of travel has become, you're, you're more like livestock mm, at this point. Yeah. I know, and it doesn't matter if you're in coach or business or first class, getting to that plane is, is a pain in the ass. It sure so, is. So that, the fun part there is, is been diminished, but I still, you know, find it absolutely fascinating to get on a plane and look around and sometimes I'll get the whole compartment to flip me off and stuff. I start talking. <laughs> you know. but then, you know, the whole, whole thing of, you know, uh, cause still so much of the touring is bus touring. Like when yeah. we're on the streets. Or Do you Europe. like, can you sleep on a bus? No, I never sleep on the bus. Oh, oh, oh. Yeah. really? Yeah. I'm a, I'm a real shit sleeper. I, I'm on, mm. on an average, I'm three to four hours sleep a night at, at the most. I've been that anyway. way. Since, I've, I've been that way since I was a kid. Um, so you, have, you have 21 hours to do what you need to do, like ship out packages and T-shirts and <laughs> that too. You got more time to do that. Well, no, I mean, that's only a nanosecond, but. Um, <laughs> <laughs> um, the best 10 seconds of your life. 
<laughs> yeah. Um, <laughs> but um, no, so on, like on a lot of bus trips, I'm sitting up with the drivers, just shooting the shit with them talking. And we're the guys yeah. going into the truck stop in the wee hours of the morning together and stuff. And a lot of times my bunk on the bus becomes the junk bunk because people know I'm not going to be in it. So they start piling wow. all their crap in it. And, uh, you know, but there, there's sides of all of it, you know, checking into hotels. I mean, you, you end up learning all of your tricks of being on the road. Like you get in a hotel room and the goddamn curtains won't close and stay closed. So the light's coming in. So the first thing you do is you go in the closet, you get the pants hangers and you go and clip the, uh, oh, the yeah. curtains. You know, all Brilliant. those kinds. You MacGyver yeah. it. Yeah, exactly. Exactly. Yeah. Um, but, you know, I love I love being on the road. I love traveling you know, and just looking out the window, you know, traveling through some of the most beautiful. So you're still curious after all Absolutely. these years. Wow. Absolutely. I, when, when the phone rings and I get called to do something, I feel as giddy as I did the first time I started working. It's never diminished at all for me. You know, wow. after a half a century, I'm still totally pumped and jacked. And, you know, I get uber prepared for it and, and stuff. Like when I went out with Toto, man, we had the best time out there. I mean, it was, I love, I've known the guys since before they were Toto. And Luke right. and I have been friends since he was 19 years old. And um, Are you the big brother in that situation? Because they're, yeah. they're a couple of years younger than you. Yeah, yeah. We're, we're, usually, we're usually, with something like that, it's about 10 years. They're all about 10 years younger. Right. And, um, and so I... I I become like the person that they people come to when they when they're having a rough time and they want to talk. I'm a good shoulder for people. You know, I, right. I, I'm really I'm really good at listening and I'm non-judgmental. Doesn't you know? weigh on you after a while. You're cool with that. No, because at this point in my life, I can't remember them five minutes later. <laughs> <laughs> it, 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 I'm like I'm like a I'm like a I'm like a reel of tape that was just set on a magnet. Oh God! Yeah, I, I did, resemble that remark as well. Yeah, I degauss really fast. Oh, no, man. no, it it doesn't. I've got friends that I've been with them on their at their deathbeds. Um, other friends that were, you know, really at the end of their rope, and it was really good sitting with them and talking to them and talking them out of ending things. And yeah, um, you know, I, I would have probably been a good therapist. You know, is, is you know, at, at a certain point, and I know I could use it myself, and I've never availed myself. But you know, everybody's got their ups and downs and right. stuff. I'm, I think, the fact that I've been cognizant of most things because I wasn't drunk or, or high or anything right. like that has allowed a, 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 me to have a clarity like as far as drugs went um when i was like probably in the mid mid 60s for the most part i was doing the chitlin circuit mm -hmm. um, i became friends with uh, george harmonica smith who was one of the greatest blues harp players out of chicago ever and through him, I got to work with Jimmy Reed and Lightning Hopkins and Big Mama wow. Thornton and Pee Wee Creighton and uh, Magic Sam, all these people. And I got around and I saw a lot of dark side, um, you know, early on. And uh, I, I was in a band and, and our, our singer died of a meth overdose like in 1968. Mm. Um, you know, things like that. I, I, I was fortu fortunate in my own way to see the dark side of the whole thing. So when yeah. everybody was getting high, I would just go, no, I'm good. Thanks. You know, I would never say, don't do that. You know, I wasn't yeah. one of those. People. Right. 
Um, but, you know, I was the designated driver all the time. You know, I would make sure everybody got home okay. And, uh, oh, of course, I was always the one with the van, so I could put all the <laughs> you shit were in the, the bass player had the van. <laughs> yeah, of course. They you know, PA too? You, yeah, they hired you because you're, you because know, you have a girlfriend because her father owns a chrome <laughs> show. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Do you think, Leland, that looking back on your career, do you think music has a, is kind of, um, oh, what's the word I'm looking for? Insulated from racial tensions. And the reason I'm asking that is obviously this year, starting in Minneapolis, the killing of George Floyd. Yeah. I feel coming from an R&B and funk background, playing with Prince, et cetera, et cetera, that I felt somewhat insulated from feeling a certain way towards somebody that had a different color skin simply yeah. because we're just playing music, man. Yeah. That's all there is to it. I just wondered if that translated to you and throughout your career, or have you seen the ugly side of that as well? Or well, I, I've certainly seen, I've seen the ugly side of it. Um, and, um, and, and, and I find it so profoundly repulsive and, and, and disgusting because um, since, I, I, since I began playing music, for the most part, I've always been working with, with black musicians, Mexican musicians, Asian musicians, white musicians, um, American Indian musicians. Um, there's always, there is, if there's a melting pot, like they talk about America as a melting pot, for the most part, the music industry is truly a melting pot. Now, there's aspects of the music industry that probably um, don't feel that way. And, and, and over the years, I've discovered musicians that I thought I knew that um, all of a sudden I went, are you kidding me? Right. You, sometimes, like, when you get more inside with them, like, I, I spent about... 12 years, almost weekly, going back and forth to Nashville from like 80 to 90. And, you know, once you're with guys a, a lot, then all of a sudden some conversations loosen up and you kind of just go, Ooh. hmm, Ooh. this ain't what I thought was going on here. And, mm -hmm. and it, it, it's really hard in the same way that this past couple of years, musicians that in town here that I discovered are really right-wing Trump people. And I'm just going, how can you be this creative and stuff and have like daughters and, and all this and yet you're you're buying this this insanity that's going on so it's you know certainly from, from a racial standpoint um i think the music industry from the very beginning really allowed me to have uh, a, a wide berth in terms of my taste in music my my uh comfort in friendships and relationships with people and I've never once felt anything uh, strange about being, I mean, there are times where I would go to places where I was the only white guy right. in the place. And I never felt out of place at all. And the minute you start bullshitting with people and talking and right. stuff, it, all the curtains down and everybody's just hanging. Um, I think you, you, you can carry this energy with you um, that people can sense when you walk in a room, they... They, yeah. they want to back off. You're putting out some kind of like weird, creepy vibe. Mm -hmm. um, and I, I've always tried to embrace humanity. I don't look at, at, you know, it's like going into a record store. I'd really like to look at records. I don't want to have to look at the bin that says reggae 
oh, this one's jazz, oh, this yeah. one's country, you know, yeah. it, it makes it all up and let me discover for myself what it's all about. Right. Yep. Well, you've been so fortunate to not only play with so many different people, but you've also played every genre on the planet. And, and you know, in a musical world, sometimes people would go, oh, man, you got to play one genre or else it's not authentic. Well, you just yeah. shot that out of the water. I mean, you've done it. Uh, you've done it so well, and encouraged so many people that you don't have to be genre specific. You just got to play the music. Is that your music specific? I mean, you know, you've played I mean, with everyone from what Clint Black to uh, you know Phil and and James and. But you know, then there's different. always like the Diana Rosses and the Streisands and you know, in film scores and all. I, the thing is. Like, like I can, I can pl play reggae, but I'm not going to play reggae like Sly and Robbie played reggae. They wrote the book on this right. stuff. I mean, there, there are people, you know, I can fake my way through stuff that Lewis Johnson would have done, but nobody <laughs> could play it like Lewis Johnson nobody or Larry Graham. So I, I've become, for the most part, uh, I'm, I'm like the handyman, you call, and he can kind of fix everything in the house. He may not be the best at everything he's doing, but it'll all work. Um, and then there are areas that I feel really are my real comfort zones. But when you take on the responsibility of being a studio musician, you really, you really have to have big ears. You have to listen to a lot of music and understand a lot of genres because I would say 85% of the time, I have no idea what I'm being called for until right. I get there. And a lot of times there's no charts or there's a chord sheet or, you know, right. you, you just don't know. So you have to have some preparation. But I remember a, a number of years ago, I got uh, called to do an album with a guy named Steve Kowalczyk and Ahmed Erdogan was producing him. And um, his stuff was kind of like, he was like a, like a Harry Connick before Harry Connick. Um, it was, you know, kind of sort of big band, but not with a big band arrangements. But the guy was a really good writer, pianist, singer. And, and, and when we started it, they said, man, we'd really like to use Upright on this. And I said, look, man, I haven't played Upright in years. I've got one, but yeah. it's not my first instrument anymore. But I said, look, I have a Washburn AB45 um, acoustic bass that I yanked the frets out of. And I said, let me try that. And it's a, and it's it's kind of like an upright, but with a more unique sound because mm. of what it is. Yeah. And they said, oh, it's perfect. That'll be great. No, just don't worry about it. Let's go ahead. But we got to two songs in this, and I said, these really need upright on them. And it was when Patatucci still lived in Los Angeles. So I said, yep. look, let me just call John. And he was available. And I said, okay, I'm off the clock now. I'm going to hang out with John. But he came in and did these two songs and totally killed them. So I know... I know my strengths and my weaknesses, and right. I'm the first guy to say, look, like Jeff Beccaro was like this, um, right. where he would say, Paul Keltner, Keltner's, he's, he would be perfect on this. I could do it, but Keltner's the you know, kind of thing where you right. really, the most important thing is the end product. You Amen. want it to be as good as it Not can be. Not your ego, you mean? Wait a minute. <laughs> Wait, stop. Time out. I don't what, understand. But I'll tell you what was really funny was... Um, I was back east in Boston. I was in Boston playing with Judith Owen, and we played this gig. And Steve Bailey and Victor Wooten came to the gig. So, oh yeah, I know. So, I so, love you know, that. I know both those guys. 
Oh, God, they're the best, just yeah. the best. And so afterwards, they were saying, so what are you doing tomorrow? I said, well, we got tomorrow off going to New York because we, we start in New York the next day. They said, can you stay? We'll throw together a, a class. Right. And I said, well, sure, I'd be happy to. So I go in, and there's like at Berkeley, and there's like 200 bass players in this room, and I'm going, holy shit, because that's not my comfort zone. I'm not one of those guys who sits down and shows you how fast right, they can play right. mix a little yeah, and all that. this. I'm more of a, I, I like to tell stories and I love Q and A. I love opening up dialogue. Right. So I was telling that story about Steve Kowalczyk's album and this guy in the back of the room raises his hand and I said, yeah, he goes, I'm Steve Kowalczyk. <laughs> and it was that guy. And he remembered no all the way. And he was, I think he was teaching at Berkeley at that point. Fantastic. And we hooked up, but it was just, I'm, I'm just glad I didn't say, oh man, I work for this wanker. <laughs> this guy was like such a <laughs> um, but it was really fun and we hung out for a while, but every time I get a chance to go back there and do anything or any of these webinars that, um, that they've been doing through Berkeley. On the Thursdays, I've done a couple of them as well. Yeah, they're great. They're really the people that came They're on. so into it and they're so giving and I love their educational style as well yeah oh they're really? amazing they're an amazing bunch of of people and and and, and it, it's such a remarkable community because to me the bass community has to kind of evolve different than any other musical community because uh because generally on a session there's only one bass player there could right. be multiple so you know three keyboard players couple guitar players even double drums and then the lone bass player right um, so like during breaks those guys are all nerding over gear and stuff right. and you're just kind of, you know, <laughs> sitting there. <laughs> um, exactly and it's that's true and that's probably why we don't know each other because we yeah. haven't entered into that world before but yeah so, so what, do you, what do you think about the new breed of bass players coming up well We're going to break away from the interview right now because I want to tell you about a couple of really cool things. First of all, thank you to everybody who's embraced Funk Friday. We are having so much fun bringing a little joy to the internet every single Friday with a one-minute funk jam. So thank you so much for that. And if you like Funk Friday and you like music on the run and you want to become our partner and help us put those shows on, go to patreon.com forward slash music on the run podcast. Again, become our partner at patreon.com forward slash music on the run podcast. And there you'll get all the information on how you can financially help us produce this podcast and get some pretty cool merchandise and incentives in return. I'd also like to take this opportunity to thank the patrons who've already signed up. We could not do this show without you. As always, thank you so much for supporting us here at Music on the Run. Now back to our interview. What do you think about the new breed of bass players coming up? Well, you know, I've written a couple of times on some of the bass sites. I have nothing but the utmost admiration for for the um, dedication and facility that mm -hmm. that a lot of these bass players ha have created. The only other question I would tend to ask any of them would be: Is do you ever want to work? 
Um, because for the most part, all that all that stuff, it, 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 it's kind of like watching a pose off at a bodybuilding contest, and everybody's pumped and they're kind of nudging everybody away. Um, I know that like when when I've done like bass player live, uh, whenever every year when they would have that. And then they always, at the end of, uh, of the evening, all the bass players get up on stage and play. And I've always refused to do that because it's just not my cup of tea. Got it. Uh, and, and so sometimes I've gone on some of these sites and I go, the one th- I'm profoundly intimidated by some of the facility that I yeah. see on these things because I, I know my limitations mm-hmm. as a player. Um, and I see these people doing, you know, playing like, like Chopin on the bass tap, double tapping and, you know, mm-hmm. harmonics and all this. I mean, the, the thing I, I question then is I don't see anybody showing how to create a bass line for a song. Uh, generally, most of that stuff is, is just like a, an, an open E and they're just doing all this stuff on like, you know, on, in this monotone. Um, and it's not to denigrate what they do, but my whole career has been based around being a song person and there's nothing i like better than sitting in a studio with somebody that pulls out a guitar or a piano and they play you something and you if there's no chart you sketch out maybe a little guide path to it Mm -hmm. and then you just shut your eyes and 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 as george lucas would say let the force be with you Mm. and and just find what that song wants from you and if that song just wants whole notes and half notes i'm good Right. I'm good with that. If it wants something far more extemporaneous, um, fine. But when I see all these videos, I see a ton of chops, but I don't see a, a, a ton of concept or, right. or purpose. It's really to show off, you know, how hard I've practiced it, you know, doing something. So and, your advice to that generation is learn some half notes, learn some whole notes, and just well, feel and, and you're not being derogatory at all. I totally no, understand what you're saying. I yeah. t- I'm not taking it that way at all. Yeah. No, I think, you know, find really great songs that, that you find interesting and f- learn the bass parts to those two that are melodic and, and integral that, that weave through the song that really are the catalyst that can pull everything together from the melodic and the rhythmic structure of the song and not just impose yourself on it. Because I remember Hal Blaine told me a story where he went down to San Diego and played a gig, and there was a young bass player on the gig. And he said, this kid whipped it out, man. He had so much chops. It was Mm. ridiculous. And after the gig was over, he came up to Hal, and he kind of puffed up with his peacock feathers all bursting. And he said, so what do you think? And Hal looked at him seriously, and he said, I think we could use a bass player. (laughs) You know? (laughs) (laughs) But, you know, you have to know, you don't have to know, because some guys have created those kind of chop things. Mm -hmm. They're the artist, and they're creating music around what they do, or they're within the confines of of a style, like with some other guys, like, you know, some of the guys that do, like, death metal and all that, and it's kind of mind-blowing, some of the Mm -hmm. stuff these guys play. That won't necessarily translate into other... Genre. So it also depends what you want to do with your music. Where I've loved spending my whole life joining a new band every day as yeah. a studio musician. I mean, my commitment to it is when I walk in a studio for somebody, even if I'm only doing one day with them, is 
I put the same dedication into that as I would as if it was my band. Um, because, uh, and I've always said you have, when that phone rings, you have two options. You can say yes or no. And if you say yes, it comes with obligation and dedication mm -hmm. to it. Um, when you finish cutting a track, you don't just get on your cell phone and jerk around. You go in and listen to the playback. You throw in suggestions. You, you be, you're engaged in it. And you, and you look really to try to find the perfect, just the perfect part. Now, a day later, you might hear the song and respond slightly differently to it because it's all so organic. Yeah. It's like if I play a bass part and suddenly they say to me, oh, that was great, double it. Panic sets in because when I'm cutting that bass part, generally, right. I'm not thinking about that part. If I knew right. I was going to double it, I might have been more methodical. Mm -hmm. So I go from this perfect performance to punching in every three bars. <laughs> <laughs> um, or if like, I, I have a piccolo bass with me and we want to double it with piccolo to make it right. sound like an eight string or something like that. So, yeah. But so what you're doing is you're bringing your yourself and what you do to the party, what your soul tells you to play. Yeah. That day. Yeah. It's it's not pre-planned. You may do some homework or something like that is what I'm hearing. If you have it to. It depends. Generally I I'm I'm given so little in advance if no, mostly nothing that you're really kind of, you know, when you walk in the doors when you find out what you're doing. Sometimes um, I bet you that's a good thing actually. Yeah, it can be amazing. I remember we used to do, we had a, a, a group of guys. It was, I think, Mike Baird and, and David Foster and Jay Graydon. There was Ooh. a group of us that did all the filmation shows like Jabber Jaws and Groovy Ghoulies. And oh, the really? RPG, all these cartoon shows. And, and we did it at Larrabee Studios here in town. Sure. And I remember we were all sitting in the room one day waiting for the session to start. And who walks in the door but um, Ted Knight from the Mary Tyler version. Yeah. <laughs> And yeah. we did a we did a song called an album called Hi Guys, <laughs> Hi Guys, <laughs> and it was and there's there's you know Ted Baxter suddenly in the room and we were doing oh like oh my very, god very, and of course I loved him so oh he was so delightful or I remember doing going in there another time and Jim Neighbors was the artist on oh, it oh wow great so, singer yeah. man oh man uh, one of the the thrills for me was I did two albums with Andy Griffith. No, Andy, and, and, and the first album we did, he won a Grammy for a contemporary gospel album that year. Come on, and and and, and we became very close for oh. that. And I, I kept pinching myself. And the best part of that project was at one point we were sitting there, and he had this sick, beautiful white hair. And he, he looks over and he goes, "Who would have thought I'd still have all this white hair?" And Opie would be bald. <laughs> <laughs> I almost shit my pants. I was laughing. So oh, that's hard. so good. I've saved I've saved tape uh, answering machine things with where he called me and he said, "Lee, Andy here in North Carolina, how are you doing? What's what's going on and stuff?" And we became and he's so smart though because he uh, before the album got released, he uh, he went on QVC and talked wow. about it and everything. And he sold a million units before he ever released the album. Pre, Pre-internet, because that was the place to be. I remember yeah. doing a show with Donny Osmond on QVC, yeah. and we did a little performance, and he sold bazillions of these things. Yeah. it's It still is a remarkable format to do it. Um, but when you have, like, a Donny presence or you have an Andy Griffith presence, right. you go on there, and you've won already at that point. The people are just 
they can't get their card out fast enough and they don't give a shit what you're selling. Exactly. They just want to support you and be part of it. Right. So, um, so I think for me, you know, really kind of to hearken back to all of this stuff, the, the joy I've found in this business is variety. Is like, you know, being with Anthony Newley one day and, and then the next day you're with Alice Cooper. You know, I mean, it's like it runs that, that, that extreme gamut. And sometimes you, you feel in, you're maybe a little over your head. Uh, I, I did an, uh, an album a while back and I've, I've posted some stuff from it on my YouTube channel with an artist from Italy named Ciro Mana. Okay. And he's this monstrous guitar player. He's, he's right up there with Steve Vai and Luke okay. and all these guys, you know, uh, amazing. But it was, we were cutting it as a trio uh, and it was in Simon Phillips' studio. So it was mm -hmm. Simon and myself and Chiro. And man, the songs were hard. There was a lot of linear stuff. And he came right. with zero charts and we had a couple of days to, to cut the album. Man, I was sweating bullets through this whole thing. <laughs> right. there and play that again, you know, and sketching out parts and stuff because it mm. was deep. And the thing turned out great, and we be, we we, we were, became fast friends. And um, and maybe we'll play again someday. But there are times when you step in, you go, "Wow, man, I I am I just jumped in the deep end and uh -oh. I forgot how to swim." Right. Uh, because I I I. I I know my strengths and my weaknesses. Mm -hmm. I live in my skin. I mean, it's like, I'm sure you've been through this where you come off of a show where you just kind of go, God, I just sucked tonight. And people are coming up going, that was Great. so good. Yeah. That was the best show I ever heard. And you, and you just have to say, thank you. You don't get mm -hmm. into like, Oh man, you should have heard me a week ago when I knew what I was doing before I, my brain exploded. <laughs> <laughs> oh, I hate those moments. I yeah, but, but that's the reality of it because everybody judges on a level that isn't the level you judge. Yeah, they're not zoning in. Uh, they don't have your mix in their head. The, yeah. And they don't have a clue is that the fact that you missed that by a half a note or something. Yeah. When I'd come off stage like that, my wife had a term for that and it was called the musician's attitude, meaning you had a rough night and yeah. she knew to just give me a little time. Yep. Back oh, off. I'm just going to see you in a few. I love you. Bye-bye. You know, she'd yeah. give me that time just because she knew and, and, and it yeah. happens to all of us. Yeah. Uh, it's just part of the deal, isn't it? Yeah. You're human. Yeah. Oh God. Not a, really? Yeah. Well, I, I, I hate to be accusatory, but you know, judging by what I'm seeing here, uh, you're not Max Headroom. Not, no, but sometimes the Zoom will appear to make me be that guy. I have no, a, a couple of more questions because oh, I want to be... Anything uh, you want. You're cool? Okay, because oh, I just yeah. don't want to... I want to be good I'm, to you I'm, in your I'm time. Good. So. We've already gone way past what I would consider reasonable. <laughs> <laughs> so you might as well we'll never talk no, again. Nothing. You're screwed. No, I'm no going to talk bad about you behind your back, or in front of your back, too, for that matter. <laughs> uh, you have had so many different kind of gigs and and I know it's one thing to get the gigs the real question and I think that everybody would like to know is how do you keep them you know what I mean what are the things that you do or don't do because you know you have longevity we're talking yeah, I, 40 50 years of playing yeah. And I guess the real question is, how do you think you've been able to survive in this business for that long? Um, you lose the gag reflex. 
I'm only kidding. That, that's really well, wait, dark. I could have taken that about 12 different ways. So I was yeah. thinking of which one I was going to. No, edit edit that one out. <laughs> no, no, I, I think. <laughs> nope, that's I, staying in, brother. That's too good. Yeah. Um, no, I, I think there's, there's so many levels to it. I, I think, first off, I think you have to be a person that people want to hang with. Because when you get on the road, especially, um, that's a confined space. And, oh, yeah. and if you're out there with somebody who's a total pant load, um, and you're looking at months of having to be around this person, and it doesn't matter if they're the greatest musician in the world. If they come into dinner and you want to move as quickly as you can and get out of there, that's not good. So I think you, you need to be not socially in everybody's face, but you need to be somebody that somebody just likes to be around and, and hang with. Um, I think you need to be dependable. Um, the last thing you want is somebody on the road who's like manic depressive or, you know, in terms of every aspect, like one night they play like a genius and the next day they suck for whatever reason. You want consistency and a, really a solid player. Um, you want, you want somebody, um, um, you, 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 you want to be around creative people that, you know, maybe you've got the songs all worked out, but they're always like bringing a little extra to the, to the game, you know, just to keep it really interesting for them and for you. Um, but I think being prepared, like a lot of times I'd be on tours where everybody's at dinner and I'm sitting in the hotel room with a little practice unit, or I'm sitting like in the dressing room with it yep. and I'm going over stuff and the guys would come in and say, how come you're always in here practicing? And I'd say, because there's only one guy on stage that actually has to know where the downbeat is and what it is, and that's me. Mm -hmm. So a drummer can hit anything. I mean, it may not be the right drum, but hitting a drum, you're gonna you're committed to it. The rest of you guys can lay out or have a volume pedal, or if you hit a wrong thing, you can kind of do. If the bass player hits a wrong note, it's a wrong note. So I'm always like hyper prepared for projects. I put in a lot of hours in, in preparation and learning. I remember I was going to be doing Phil Collins's uh, but uh, No Jacket Required tour. And I, I was at the, that time, we were in Brazil doing the first Rock and Rio festival with James Taylor. And I, had, and I sat in the hotel room the whole time learning Phil's music um, because I was flying straight from Rio to London to start his tour. And, and I arrived there knowing his show inside out. I mean, I just knew it. And most of the guys had forgotten most of it. So I ended up being the guy teaching everybody their parts. Mm -hmm. <laughs> I had put this effort into it. But I think there's just a lot of, a lot of considerations. I, I think um, you have to be cognizant. If you're out there with a bunch of people that, that don't drink and don't do drugs, and suddenly you're the guy who's high and drunk all the time, um, that could cost you a gig. Um, the last thing you want to do is get on a bus for eight hours and have a guy going, I love you, man. I told you I love you. You know, and you're sitting there going, where's the gaffer tape? I'm just going to mummify this guy and throw him in his bunk. Um, yeah. You know, there, there's so many little nuances that come with all of this stuff. Right. But, but yeah. I, think, I think, and all of them matter, you know, in terms of preparation. In the same way I was talking about the studio. And when a song finishes, you go in the control room and you listen to a playback. You don't ignore the playback. You go in and go, because so many times I'll walk in because what you heard when you were playing the song, 
is different than what you hear when you're listening to the playback. And right. you go, oh man, I'm I'm walking all over his vocal right there. I got to back off right there. Or that could use a little lead in or the band talks about it. And we go, God, the song is strong, but the bridge really is could use a better bridge. Mm-hmm. And then the band, you know, puts together an intro or a bridge and stuff like that. You want to make this as good a piece of music as it can be. So it's just being involved on, on pretty much every level. It's, so you're remaining creative as well when you're talking about the studio. Not absolutely. settling, not phoning it in. Show no. up. No. I mean, that's the thing. Like I said, there, you have two choices when that phone rings. If you're going to phone it in, then say no and don't do, take the gig because somebody else will take that gig and do something wonderful with it. Right. So if you, say, if you say yes, you show up and you, you give it your all. And there's been projects like I remember doing the first Enrique Iglesias record and um, I was warned about the producer. I think he was from Barcelona and they said, this guy does pre all pre-production for the stuff. So when you come in, he'll have a chart, just play the chart note for note. This is will make the guy happy. And so I, I showed up. Well, in his pre-production, he had done everything doing keyboard bass, hmm. but Trying to make it sound interesting, he used a pulse wave and played with the wheel a lot to make it kind of sound fretlessy. Yeah. Well, the computer computer didn't read that very well, so half the notes were a half, it would it would read the note of like the bottom of the wheel, so it was going to be at least a half step off. Oof. And then with a pulse wave, something that was <coughs> was <coughs> I mean it was like thirty second notes blanketing right. and. And we were going to do a whole album in like two days. Uh, and it was me overdubbing bass mm-hmm. on the project. And I looked at him after the first song. I said, I think you better book like another week. Because I said, if this is the pace and this is what I'm going to have to deal with, this is impossible. I have to really rewrite all this stuff. I, and we got through the first song and I said, would you just indulge me one take and let me just play it how I feel this song. And I played it and he went, do what you want. You know, he was wow. real happy with it, and he said, no, just, you know, listen to the song, get kind of the idea of what the song is about, and then make it yours. So, but I approached it in such a way where it wasn't exactly. like... Exactly, it's, it's in you how you did it. Yeah. yeah. And, and also, uh, another thing that translates to, to touring, um, when, especially in the days, I mean, it probably doesn't apply as much now because studio work isn't what it once was. I right. mean, it, it, we were back through the seventies into the eighties. We were probably averaging four sessions a day, six days a week. Wow! I mean, it was, I mean that's the way you you amass thousands of albums mm-hmm. of work is because we were working around the clock. Like the and your two thousand plus albums, right at this point, probably around twenty five hundred albums. Jeez, man, that's range. unbelievable. <clears throat> but um, what I would do is when I knew a tour was coming up, I had there was a, a bunch of producers who I would work for. I would call them you know, before the tour ever started and say, look, here's my schedule. Here's when I'm leaving. Here's when I'll be back. Um, Sometimes they would move a project up and say, well, we can't wait that long. So can you come in next week and we'll do it next week before you leave? Or they would say, we can hold it until you get back. Right. Um, And then before the tour ended, like a week or two before the end of the tour, I would call them again and say, I'll be back on such a day where other players I know would go on the road and they wouldn't tell anybody. They would just leave town. So their phone calls went unanswered because they oh. didn't have cell phones and stuff. That right. was the answering service would leave them a message and they would find somebody else to do the session. So I think one thing you have to do is 
in spite of the fact it's called playing, uh, this is a, a, a hard, this is a profession. Mm-hmm. And you treat it as a professional. So when, when, when you're working with other people, you, you bring them in collectively. And, and it's not so much kissing ass and making them feel important, but they are important. And so you, you give them your schedule and you keep them abreast of what's going on. And there are a lot of times where, like the band, we would land back in L.A. and the other guys would be heading home. And I'd say, well, I got to go to the studio. And I would have a date lined up from, you know. And, and, and it was because I was staying in touch with the producers and they knew right. my schedule. And, Smart. Uh, so you, you just have to treat it. And, and I've always been self-managed. I've never had an agent or a manager or anything like that. I do everything myself. I saw you packing T-shirts and sending out books and all that kind of stuff. You're your own fulfillment center too, aren't you? I am, I am now. It, I think that's hilarious. COVID. I, with COVID, I can't bring anybody you know into no, do anything. No, of course not. So, but the book has been killing. I mean, it's been insane. I mean, I've just tell uh, me a but, little bit about the book. Okay, um, in 2004, we were doing Phil Collins's first final farewell tour. Okay, and at the and and, and it kind of got screwed up towards the end where um, we had it was a long tour. Um, towards the end of the tour. Um, we were supposed to be going to Africa and I think Southeast Asia, uh, but it was at the time Phil had done the music for Tarzan. And, okay, sure. Broadway, and the producers decided they wanted Phil there for the rehearsals. Why? None of us could figure out. Right. But in, in doing so, it cost us those legs of the tour that were yet to come. Hmm. Um, and so there was talk, I think at that point, he was just kind of done. And so there was there was talk that Phil was going to retire at the end of the tour and just call it. And um, and so I thought, you know, there's like a hundred people on the road here. We always had a big crew, and those tours were really huge. Um, and I thought I may never see a lot of these people again. And we've been on the road for you know years together, but um, a lot of them were from Europe, from the UK, from different parts of the United States. So I thought. I'm just going to take a picture of everybody and make a little end of tour folder just for my memory book. If I ever have a a memory and, um, and they had hired me a base tech for the tour. A guy, Steve, uh, his nickname was Chinner, Steve Winstead. And I think he came in off of somebody's tour. I don't know, you know, like I forget who he was out with, but I think the bass player had like, 10 bases and wanted new strings every night and all that. So he came in like just rare and over, way overqualified to be working. Yeah. And he said, what do you need? What do you need? What do you need? And I said, um, nothing. I've never had a tech before. I've always done my own gear. And uh, I said, I guess just make sure the amps on stage and it works. <laughs> I don't know. What else. Well, I like to, I like to tune my own stuff and plug in and right. check my batteries and all that stuff. So he became kind of like, not, I won't say a gopher, but he ended up working for everybody who needed somebody because my needs were so minimal. Mm-hmm. And um, so we had, we were really good friends, but we had kind of a running gag where we'd see each other and I just, no, no, I'm fine. <laughs> kind of yeah, thing. Right. And so at, at the end of the tour, it, luck would have it. The first guy I went up to to get his picture was Steve Chinner and he's sitting at his laptop typing and I go, Hey Chinner, give me a smile. And he just goes, <laughs> and I take the picture and I look at it and I go, 
this is actually pretty cool. So I went and I got, I got Phil, I got his manager, Tony Smith. I got the whole band, all the crew, the truck drivers, the caterers, everybody, you know, security people at the venue where we right. were. Whatever. And I tucked it away. It was about 125, 130 pictures altogether. Then I, when I went on the road with Toto after that, I kind of went, that was pretty cool. So I went and got pictures of all the guys and everybody on that. And it got up to about 300 pictures. With the one finger salute. Just, just everybody giving okay. me a finger. Um, then it took on a life of its own. And I would go to the NAMM show. People would come running up to me and flip me off. And so, and I ended up with about 12,000 photographs of everything imaginable. And um, when the pandemic hit, I mean, people have bugged me for years saying, are you ever going to do a book about this? Because it's so cool. Because I don't care about this. Yeah. this is, there's a finite way of doing this. This is what I love. And right. looks on people's faces when they're empowered. So there's everything from absolute hiding to like, <laughs> yeah! Kind of right. Um, I, I was at a, a, a friend of mine in Pasadena. He's a, an artist named Kenton Nelson. He's a famous, famous artist. And his work is all over the world. He's amazing. But he would do these get-togethers in his backyard, just to have a you know a dozen guys over. And we would just sit out there and eat pizza and bullshit. Mm-hmm. And one of the guys he had um, was um, this guy, um, Richard Tremarki, but his nickname is Blue, an art company where they do all all kinds of um, uh, photographing people's collections and and doing prints and all that. And I talked to him about it, and he said, this would really be a fun project to do. So, And he's local, so we started getting together, and I gave him a... uh, little memory stick with 12,000 photographs oh on it. And we, and we honed it down to 6,000 pictures. And, um, uh, and I just, I mean, I, I may have made a mistake, but I don't think I did. I think in the long term it'll work out, but I self-published the thing myself. So I'm like sure. into this all myself. Um, but the book is unbelievable. And the thing that I, I like about it so much is I didn't make it like, here's the celebrity section. Oh, here's, you know, the man on the street. Oh, here's the memoriam. It's like everybody's in it. So you're looking through this and you're seeing all these different people and suddenly there's Charles Barkley and then there's Jay Leno. And, you know, and I've I've got everybody from Lawrence Fishburne to Jeremy Irons to Jane Seymour to Charlie Watts, James Taylor. Oh, Oh, yeah, James. He's great. Um, I've got one of my favorite shots is I, uh, and I had, I have individual shots of all of them from when I worked with them, but we did the Grammys a few years ago. So I have Merle Haggard, uh, Christopher and Willie Nelson all together, giving me the finger. Oh my God. And they're on one page and and my parents are on the opposite page. (laughs) Uh, And and the the thing starts with babies giving the finger and little kids giving the finger. I mean, right. It's While big. he's looking for that, what is it? Leland's. Everybody loves me. There it is. Yeah. Where do we get that, uh, Leland? You go. I had to create a website for this. So you finally I, have one. I finally have one. And what it was was I, I was looking for LelandSklar.com or LeeSklar.com, and some somebody's bought all those domains mm-hmm. up. So rather than going and kissing somebody's ass, you know, to mm-hmm. get it back. I just sat there and I went, well, let's just call it LelandSklarsBeard.com. Right. And uh, and so on that website, and we're going to build that website into like a really loony 
place. But as of now, the main focus is for the book. Right. On it. Then I have these T-shirts where we put my beard on the front of the <laughs> I T-shirt. saw that. And all these people are going nuts wearing these shirts now. And then I was an art student in college, so I've got a bunch of my artwork on there. And we're doing real fine art prints of Yeah, it. don't pass over that so quickly. You are unbelievably gifted I, artist. I, I mean, you are. I mean, it's unbelievable. When I met James Taylor, I was still in college, and I was probably looking towards becoming an illustrator or a medical illustrator or something like that. Right. Um, but I'll find a couple of pictures. But this is – well, here's, here's a good one. I mean, this is really funny. So you have – um, there's Lou Adler who produced Tapestry and all the great A&M records right. and then his partner at the Laker games is Jack Nicholson <laughs> so that, yeah, and, those, and those are Laker colors uh, um, the purple and gold of course so, like little, little hidden themes in, oh here. here here we go so here's my parents <laughs> and then there's oh my god Merle and Chris and Willie, unbelievable. Yeah. yeah so, and, so those and of you of, listening have to go get this book because the pictures he's showing on the video are so incredible. Yeah, I mean, it's, and this is like, I mean, it's like Randy, I'm just sitting here looking at Steve Tyler and Randy Newman and Earl Slick and, I mean, all these people. But this is one of my favorite shots right here. Let me get this page open here. You found a thing that brings everybody together once I mean, again. This was my junior high school music teacher who took who taught me bass. Oh, he's the bass. one who told you to quit playing the piano and move yep. to the bass. Or not quit yeah. playing the piano, but Ed Lynn. So he's at the end of the book with a dedication. That's, um, but you can see how huge this thing is. That's I mean, unbelievable. Sixty dollars uh, uh, on your website and eighty dollars autographed, I believe. Is that correct? Yeah, yeah, yeah. It's sixty unsigned, eighty signed. And and I'm doing everything. So when you see all the sloppy tape work on the box and stuff, that's me. That's, there's footage <laughs> I mean, of you putting them all together on your YouTube page, which I think yeah. is fantastic. Okay, so let me, let's slide into uh, coming out of the pandemic. We, are, we have a light yeah. at the end of the tunnel. You have a project with a bunch of your old good buddies who you've played with yeah. for however many years. years. 50 years. So in, in a band I was in was actually that Prince produced was called The Family. Your band is called The Immediate Family. Yeah. Tell us a little bit about the new record that's coming out. Well, uh, when we started with James Taylor in 1970, the original band was myself, Danny Korchmar, Russ Kunkel, and Carol King was wow. the piano player in the group. Uh, we kept encouraging Carol to do some stuff on her own because she was a renowned songwriter with Jerry Goffin, but nobody knew her as an artist. And then she goes in the studio and cuts a little ditty called Tapestry and ends up with the biggest record in the world. Yeah. So she had to leave the group. And I was doing an album with Tom Jans and Mimi Farina. And Mimi was Joan Baez's younger sister. And um, there was a keyboard player on the session named Craig Berge. And I called Peter Asher and I said I think I found the keyboard player to replace Carol and stuff and through that we ended up forming a band called The Section Um, and um, so we had our our three albums that we did and blah 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 with all that and it was great and we would open for James and then play his shows and we would open for Jackson Brown and play his show and all this stuff but uh, a 
few years back, um, Cooch got a, Danny Korchmar got a record deal with a company called Vivid Records in Japan. And uh, so when it came time to go in the studio, he took a chance and he called me and Russ to see if we were around. He, he figured we were on tour, but yeah. we happened to be in town for the week he was talking about. So we got together. Waddy was still, I think, on the road with Stevie Nicks at mm -hmm. that point, but he, he was able to get back in town for the last day of it. And then Cooch had just moved out here from, he was living either in New York or Connecticut, I forget. Um, but he, where he moved out here, he hooked up with Steve Postel. And I had done Steve, Postel, so Steve Postel's solo album, and he had a group that he was, we were doing gigs around town called uh, uh, the Night Train uh, Music Club, something like, I forget now mm -hmm. what we call it. But it was like, you know, club gigs around town, and sure. it was always a lot of fun. So Cooch and, and, and Postel had hooked up. So when we went in Jackson, we used Jackson Brown Studio in Santa Monica, and Nico Bolas engineered it. Oh, and, yep. We went in, in a, in a couple of days, we, we cut all these songs. And what it, what it was was Cooch is a prolific songwriter. I mean, when you look back at, like, Don Henley's albums, Cooch co-wrote Dirty Laundry and All She Wants to Do is Dance. He mm. wrote Machine Gun Kelly with, mm -hmm. for James Taylor. Um, and so we went in and did these songs the way he thought of them rather than the way these other artists have done them. And we did them, um, in just unique ways and then ended up going to Japan with this. So when he had to title the album, the album was Danny Korchmar and he thought, well, you guys really are my immediate family. And we've been together for a half a century and, the remarkable part of it is, is in, in the 50 years we've played together and known each other, there's never been words, there's never been an argument, nothing. I mean, you hear about all these bands that hate each other and they all yeah. travel separately and all that stuff. Man, we, we, we are best friends. We all get along great. And, yeah. and when we're in the studio, everybody's respectful. So you can say, that's not working. That's, that's, and nobody's going, hey, fuck you, man. That's my song, you know, kind of thing. Right. It's really a working relationship hmm. together. Um, so he called it Jan Danny Korchmar and the immediate family. We did the tour and it went great. I mean, the response in, in Japan was like amazing for, we did the whole, like the blue note and all those, you know, clubs in Japan. Mm -hmm. um, then it came time to do more. And we, we signed a deal with a label called Quarto Valley records out here in Los Angeles. And at that point it, it was no longer Cooch's project. It would, we just changed it to the immediate family. Got it. And before the pandemic hit, we were back in, in Jackson's studio again with Nico, and we cut a all new, this was all new material, because we were telling people we were a cover band that only played originals, <laughs> which is what the band really was. And exactly. having Waddy there, like Waddy co-wrote Werewolves of London, did a lot of stuff with Zevon. Mm -hmm. um, so there was, we had like a huge book of songs that everybody was involved in that we'd either played on, toured, produced, you know, any of those things. So it wasn't like... Um, a situation where we were just hired help. This was a different situation completely. And we were fortunate to have finished the album uh, before the pandemic hit, but then we had all these plans for the year. So things immediately ground to a halt. Right. Plus um, Denny Tedesco, who's been making, who made the, the Wrecking Crew movie, which is such a brilliant piece of film work, sure is. Is, is doing a documentary film about us called The Immediate oh, Family. Yeah, and so we were we were hauling along with that, and then that slowed down because of yeah. the ability to do interviews and stuff mm. suddenly got very different. 
Right. So we've done two live stream concerts. Um, we've, we're going to be releasing our third EP. We still haven't touched anything from the new album. We're still waiting on that. So that'll probably okay. come out somewhere in the end of the first third of next year. Okay. Um, and we're trying to line that up with the documentary film because there's still sh stuff to be shot, but they're doing a lot of editing at this point and doing you know, what they can at this point. They filmed us at the Iridium in New York and on that the That was the last gig I played in, in March. I think I closed it down. <laughs> wow. Yeah, I love playing that room. But That's yeah, a great it, little room. Yeah, it was really fun. Um, so there's things, things are going on and... Um, the videos have been turning up fabulous. We hooked up with a great video editor. And so we, like the, the one we have out, out right now was New York Minute, which was a, Hen, a song Henley recorded, but um, uh, Cooch co-wrote that with him. And um, so we're, we're all ourselves and then sending in our own cuts to the editor. And then he's right. like, there's these beautiful New York street scenes and we're like on the fronts of the buildings and stuff. I mean, wow. it's very stylish and stuff. And, and we have a great management team. So like everything's in place, but we we went from being the tortoise to the hare. I mean, from the hare to the tortoise. Right. Race where everything was moving like this, all of a sudden mm -hmm. it's still going forward. And our, our concern at this point is when things finally open is we want to be in the starting blocks at the front of the gate. And as soon as we can hit the road, man, we are going to be out there. Um, the booking agents are, are ready to go with Good. it. Um, and it was fun. We, the, the last gig we played was this cruise, like I said, in, in the end of February. And um, they said normally on these cruises, they'll invite a band on. And then it's like a couple of years before they're invited back because they like to change up course, the lineup. Yep. And they said after the cruise was over, they said, you guys were so popular. Would you come back next year? <laughs> And then they had to cancel the cruise. Right. But, I mean, it, it was so cool because people came on and because we were like a last-minute edition and they were kind of looking at the name saying, immediate family. Who's that? Who's that? Yeah. And then they would see us walking around going, hey, uh, oh, hold on, I have to, there was a phone call trying to come in, Lamont Van Hook, I have to say, no, sorry, Lamont, get us back here in. We'll wrap it up here in the oh, next minute or two. Um, oh, I'm just trying to get us back to, I'll just leave it here. We're both little little corners in the screen. <laughs> oh, yeah. I know. Um, but it, they would see us walking around the ship at first, and they'd say, what are you doing on here? And they'd you know, recognize us. Yep. And we'd say, well, we're the immediate family now. And so, man, our, our gigs had a lot of people at them, and a lot of the other acts were coming and watching, and it was a great hang. So. I'm sure. And I love those cruise ships for that aspect. I did a yeah. 80s cruise with Debbie Gibson. Yeah. And man, we had so much fun going to see everybody else. It was like a, you know, uh, who's on first? How can we get to the next gig? How can we hang out with the? Yeah. It was, it was so much fun. Those are those are really fun tours to do. Yeah, I did one other before this. I did uh, I did it with Peter Asher, and it was a Flower Power cruise. Okay. It was all sixties acts. Like oh, Spencer wow. Davis was on it. And all these different bands from the sixties. And man, we were having just the greatest time. And plus, you see all the people that are on the cruise, and they're walking around in flowers in their hair and tie-dye T-shirts. Oh, and great! Yeah, it was it was really fun. I really had the best time. So I would love to do that again. I bet you're anxious to get back out, though, aren't you? 
Yeah, I just, man, if it was playing a little club locally for 50 people, I'd be out creaming. I, I hear you. And hopefully we'll be there soon. And, and but we got to be safe, you know? Yeah, that's everything is about safety at this point. I see, you know, I was so furious a um, um, couple of weeks ago when Van Morrison and Clapton came out with this whole thing about opening up the concerts again and made a record. And Sammy Hager did the same bullshit before that, saying, we got to open up our concerts. I'm thinking, this is so unconscionable. You are such jerk-offs. Because who's the safest person at that gig? You. Yeah, it's true. You'll show up and you'll be escorted to the front of the stage, protected. Oh, so what about all those people down front, shoulder to shoulder for hours? Hmm. I said, you know, you know, screw you. I, I'm so f- sick of this crap. I mean, it's the most difficult time in our history. Mm-hmm. And But if, if we're not going to address this properly, there's just going to be more and more misery and deaths, and it's going to be that much longer before things open up. Um, and I'm just weary of this, and, and the people that are still going around saying, the vaccine is just Bill Gates wants to take over the world, and he's going to put chips <laughs> oh, in us. don't get me you started. Just, you just don't get me started. Already. Yeah. I'm, I'm a Rotarian, and he's the one who's been funding the polio vaccine for yeah. years and years and years, so I, I'm a big fan. Oh, absolutely. I mean, the, the thing that, that guys like that have done is so remarkable. I mean, he's put his money where his mouth is. And, but we're dealing with a population section that is so profoundly stupid that, that they, they have... <laughs> Wait a minute. How do you really feel? Please don't sugarcoat it anymore. Leland, no, let it go. I think they have just basically enough brain power for basic life support. <laughs> and with that, ladies and gentlemen... <laughs> Oh, my buddy, this has been such a thrill for me being a bass player who has been a big fan of yours for my entire career. I just want to say on behalf of me, first of all, thank you in behalf of all the bass players that you influence. Thanks for being such a, first of all, great musician, but more importantly, a good guy who actually cares about other people cares about the hang, cares about bringing people together, is willing to pass on information, uh, is willing to show some behind the scenes, reinvent yourself, and stay completely valid into your 70s. Come on, man. This is unbelievable. So on behalf of everybody at Music on the Run, we are so thrilled to have you on the show. Thank you, thank you, thank you. It's an absolute honor to be here, man. Um, I, I was so thrilled to get the invite, man. And, and anytime you want to do this, I'm, I'm happy to come back. Fantastic. Thanks again so much. And hang on for one second, Leland. I just going to end the show by saying to my listeners and people watching, thank you as usual for joining us. Man, let's give the salute, shall we? We might as well. That's right. We'll see you in a couple of weeks on it's Music on the Run. We'll see you later. Music on the Run was hosted by yours truly, St. Paul Peterson. Edited and produced by my buddy, Davide Razo. Video editing by Ivan Sebastianov. And a very special thanks to the people who financially support this podcast. And remember, if Leland gives you the middle finger, it just means you're number one.